Hey, it is Alex Pearson from On Point. Today on our podcast, we speak about the huge drop in GDP numbers, not just a big drop, just a staggering fall, almost 40%. What does it mean? And when will we recover? Not anytime soon. We'll talk about an interesting fight between grocery store chains and suppliers who are angry and say it is no longer fair doing business because of the fees big companies like Walmart want to charge to put product on the shelf. And then we'll talk about small businesses and some of the things that they've had to do to pivot into the new norm. And that would include, if you're a small business, overhauling your whole business to be online. And let me tell you, a lot of businesses have had to do that. And business is booming if you're in that particular industry. Let's get going. If you want to win over hearts and minds, then those protesting for black lives should not act like psychopaths. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, August 28th. Great to have you along as we get you, uh, it was just my knuckle cracking, but good to uh, have you along getting you into the weekend, which is uh, my last day before I step off this crazy train for a while. It is crazy. Yeah, I'm going to go on vacation, I think, just at the perfect time until uh, after Labor Day. But man, I am, I'm ready to get off this hamster wheel of hysteria because it is absolutely that. It's just hysteria. And I feel like we're living in the twilight zone. But that that beauty you heard off the top, I mean, that, that was, I could have pulled any one of those clips. I mean, it just went on and on and on. All these videos circulating, showing these protesters terrorizing people as they left uh, Donald Trump's speech delivering his nomination acceptance at the White House in Washington. And protesting is one thing, but that, that's not what this is. And it's not what we're seeing across a lot of U.S. cities. I mean, because video after video, you see these mobs of young college-aged nutbars. And that is how they are acting. Attacking people, mobbing people, cornering people, screaming at people, including Rand Paul, who was uh, trying to leave and walk to the hotel with his wife and two other women. And here's what he said. He said he, he, he feels that he would have been killed if the police hadn't surrounded him. Well, the threats were to F you up, to, you know, to kill you. The threats were, if they could get hold of you, and I truly believe this with every fiber of my being, had they gotten at us, they would have gotten us to the ground. We might not have been killed. We might just have been injured with, by being kicked in the head or kicked in the stomach until we were senseless. You've seen the pictures. Most of the networks will not show the, the, the pictures of this. This is happening in all of our cities. It's got to stop. And thank God for the police. Had we not gotten to the police, I truly believe that the police saved our life and we would not be here today or we'd be in a hospital today had the police not been there. Yeah. So these little uh, terrorists were demanding that Rand Paul say Breonna Taylor's name. 
So, so who is Brianna Taylor? In case you don't know, she's the woman who was killed in March when Louisville police smashed into her apartment while she and her boyfriend were sleeping, and she was killed in the crossfire um, of gunfire. And what these idiots, and mainly from my vantage point, I saw a lot of white college kids hiding behind masks. What they don't get is that the guy that they were attacking is the architect of the Justice for Brianna Taylor Act, and this act and this law actually stops cops from barging into a home unannounced. So here you've got Rand Paul who took the action that those fighting for black lives are demanding. And what do they do? Well, they just attack him. But uh, he, he was just like one of dozens of people who were terrorized as they tried to leave the event. And you can hate Trump all you want. That's fine. I'm not his biggest fan. That's why I rarely talk about him. But, you know, if the left wants to rid of him, you know, this anarchy playing out all over the U.S. is going to absolutely positively ensure he wins in a landslide. Because this is not protest. It is terror. It's mob rule. And he calls it what it is. And that will appeal to people who are looking at this going, what in God's name is going on? And it's certainly not what Martin Luther King fought for. And today, thousands marched in Washington to honor him to the very spot where he made that very famous speech decades ago on this day. But I, I don't think this honors his vision. And and if Democrats were smart, and if they were watching the polls, which, which have tightened up quite a lot, uh, then they would be condemning this. But they won't. So sure, protest, march. But these things we're seeing, these riots in places like Portland, Chicago, Washington, and other cities, which are primarily run by Democrats, um, they, they're allowing these cities to be taken over by mob rule and mob rule doesn't drive change. What it does is drives people, it drives people away because who in God's name wants to sit and listen to someone screaming obscenities and threatening to kill you and destroy your life. I mean, who's going to listen to that? That's not a conversation. And the NBA, the players have forced that conversation and people are talking and I think people are willing to listen but this lunacy just kills the conversation. And I think politicians, politicians have got to stop trying to capitalize off it. The identity politics is just absolutely, it's a cancer to politics. And then, I, you know, I read this tweet, Jagmeet Singh, you know, he tweeted out something he should not have tweeted out. He declared that, quote, Regis Korczynski-Paquette died because of police intervention. She needed help and her life was taken instead. The SIU investigation brings no justice to the family and it won't prevent this from happening again, end quote. That is not true. That is patently false and it's very inflammatory and it's coming from a federal leader. You know, what happened to this young woman and her family is tragic, but there was an independent investigation and it laid out the facts. In fact, it did it in front of the media and those facts include things like surveillance footage and several witnesses who saw this young woman alone on the terrace from where she fell. And so there was no evidence to support that police pushed her, which was stated by many as a fact in the very beginning. So I think for him to play politics with him, with, with, with this, just makes him part of the problem. Because there are very real cases of racism in policing. But this isn't one of those cases because race had nothing to do with it. This was a case of mental illness. And that is where that young woman was failed. And that's where Singh should focus his ire. In it, he, that is where, you know, if he wants to bring change, 
he can do so because that is an evident problem. But I think politicians of all stripes, I don't care what side of the aisle you are on, they they have a responsibility to, you know, resist spinning news events to fuel their agenda because all it is doing is is stoking these flames of division. And now we are seeing the very explosive results of it across, you know, most of the U.S. Not happening here in Canada uh, as much, and I hope it doesn't, but it, uh, you know, it's gotten very, very ugly. And uh, late today, of course, the NBA announcing it's going to start playing again the series on Saturday. And as part of this deal, they've agreed to um, immediately establish a social justice coalition. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that is. Um, they're going to have representatives from players, coaches, governors who are going to focus on increasing access to voting. They're going to promote uh, civic engagement and advocate for advocate for meaningful police and criminal justice reform. Okay. All good things. You want you want people to get out and vote. You want people to get involved. But what does it all mean? Like are are the players themselves going to still stay involved? Are they going to be out pushing the vote? You know, are they going to educate voters on issues? Are they going to be in the communities? I don't I'm not sure what it means. And by the way, even if Biden wins in in the November election, what's he going to change now that he and Barack Obama did not and could not change in their eight years because this stuff was happening back then as well. And um, it's still happening. So it's great that Biden has all these promises now, but like, dude, where were you then? Very busy show coming up uh, for you here on this Friday. We'll talk about a pretty explosive story that once again, Sam Cooper, who if you're not following him, you should at Scooper Cooper. He gets many, many big scoops, certainly driving a lot of the stories we read about China and specifically this vaccine that uh, we partnered with China on and the fact that it's been canceled. It is a dead, done deal. So we'll talk about that. By the way, this is an issue I think that'll work for Aaron O'Toole. The, the, the issue of China um, will play well for him because he is got a very strong stance on China. His foreign policy centers and you know on China, and it actually has teeth. And it very much uh, is a different approach to Justin Trudeau. Um, so so that is a, an interesting point. But we'll talk about that later in the show. We've got a busy show. We're going to dive into the headline that probably made you choke on your your morning coffee. These GDP numbers are just staggering that we got today. I mean, it's historic. And we knew the pandemic hit would be bad, but boy, oh boy, this one's a tough one to stomach. So the question is then how do we get out of it? Like, what's the plan to get out of it? Especially when you've got a government that says they want to capitalize on this moment, seize the moment and completely overhaul uh, everything we know in this country. Like, is it really a time to experiment during recovery? I'm not so sure. I'm actually positive. It's not the the best plan. Well, if your morning coffee did not wake you up, then the GDP numbers may have. In fact, they're the uh, worst in Canadian history, plummeting about 40% in the second quarter. And yes, it reflects the hit of the pandemic at the height of it, April, May, and June. And it's pretty much the worst number we've seen in decades. And we will see some growth with the phase three reopening, but it's not going to be fast. We are absolutely not out of the woods, especially with the warnings of closures in small businesses to come. And it also, a lot of it depends on our recovery plans, what the liberals put forward in that throne speech, and if that plan is actually going to bring recovery or fulfill some kind of ideology. Philip Cross is a senior fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute, also a former chief economic analyst at Stats Canada. Good to have you. 
Good to be talking to you again, Alex. All right. So this number reflects when we were uh, in the severe kind of shutdown and the worst months of it, but we're still down 9% below pre-pandemic levels. What is that? What is this telling us? Because most people don't understand GDP and all these numbers, but what the importance of this? Well, the easy way to think about GDP is that it's basically just income. I mean, there's two major measures of what the macro economy is doing. One is jobs, and the other is the amount of income we earn working at these jobs. Uh, both took a record decline in the uh, in the first and second quarters. Uh, uh, so obviously the Canadian economy is in a recession, uh, the worst recession we've seen since the 1930s. What we're seeing in the monthly data is that the economy is slowly starting to recover. It's got a long way to go, as you, as you say. It, we probably won't get back to pre-pandemic levels for a couple of years. Um, but, you know, we're also seeing an interesting bifurcation of the, uh, of the various industries in the recovery. We're seeing a very quick recovery in a lot of industries where you can do social in, in, in distancing rather easily. Natural resources is an obvious one. Uh, construction is, is easy. Uh, manufacturing relatively easy. Even retailing. They, the retailers figured out pretty quickly, okay, we'll limit the number of people. We'll make sure that they stand six feet apart. So the recovery is going along pretty well in those sectors. What we're seeing, though, is that there's a large part of the economy, mostly services industries, that are really struggling with social distancing. And there we're hardly seeing any recovery at all. Things mm-hmm. like all those businesses that supply um, services to big office buildings, um, you know, personal services, anything that involves a crowd, you know, urban transit, spectator sports, as you know from tourism, the- hospitality, yeah. yeah, air travel. Uh, so there, we haven't figured out how they're going to recover at all, and that's going to be a real problem going forward. I mean, we can't subsidize people in these industries forever. On the other hand, you know, what do we tell them to do? Go out of business, find another job? Or what if we find a vaccine in two months? Then all these industries will come back. So it's it's really difficult to know how the economy is going to go uh, going forward. Right. But but there, these, these are not small parts of the economy. I mean, these are massive parts of the economy. In 2008, I mean, uh, 2009, you could bail out certain sectors and and that was, uh, and and we did and paid a dear price for it. But we're talking, are we going to bail out the airline industry? Are we going to bail out all the restaurant industry and small business? Are we going to bail out the, um, you know, we can't bail all of these industries out, unfortunately, and they're still locked down by pandemic rules that are not their fault. Yeah. And what's different this time, too, is, I mean, that was a very good point you made about 2008, 2009. That was a very typical recession in that, you know, uh, you know, the auto industry took it on the chin. Housing took a big downturn. So firms and workers in those industries, they've been through this before. So they're sort of prepared for this. They know you have to have a savings account. You keep some capital in reserve. Uh, you wait for six months and better times start to appear. Whereas in a lot of these uh, services industries, like hairstylists or, or mm-hmm. security services or you know janitors in office buildings, they have no experience with this. So they probably didn't have anything saved up. A lot of these firms have very low capital levels because they don't expect their, their business to disappear tomorrow. That's never happened before. So they're in a very vulnerable position. And that's why I think, you know, as we head into autumn and government support starts to 
wane a little and, and the mortgage deferral and rent deferral programs start to expire. That's why a lot of people, including myself, expect that we're going to see actually a, a large increase in bankruptcies going forward. Right. And during the time, interestingly, while the, the biggest hit came to us, April to June, uh, the Trudeau government racked up $120 billion deficit spending. That, that's enormous. You know, and, and what they say in the, in the throne speech and what they propose for a recovery plan is going to tell us, you know, how much more spending is going to happen. And it's not a secret to anybody. Their goal is to to transition to a net zero um you know, economy. They want to run a green economy, and that's expensive. And, that, and, and I, I, I think the concern is, you want to recover. This is not the time to kind of, um, you know, uh, this is not the time to experiment. No, and the emphasis should be on economic growth going forward. I mean, we've achieved the reduction of our greenhouse gas emissions that we, uh, you know, they've come down so much this year. We're way ahead of schedule on that. Where we're way behind schedule is on economic growth. And we should be doing everything possible to lower the cost of energy, to lower the, uh, the cost of a firm doing business so they can get back on their feet and they can get competitive in the U.S. market and start exporting again and so on. So uh, you're entirely right. This is not the time to experiment. In fact, this is exactly the time to focus on the fundamentals of business so we can help these firms survive. First of all, they're in just to survive mm-hmm. and then start growing again. Uh, and I say we're not really going to be out of the woods on that until we get a vaccine or a treatment for that. So, you know, if if this government wants to spend a lot in an experimental area, you know, go help people find a vaccine. Because for a lot of these services industries, that's the only possible solution. You know, people are just not going to get back into crowded spaces, mm-hmm. uh, not even go back to restaurants in large numbers until they feel safe. And um, that that has to be the priority, not chasing some green energy dream, pipe dream. Yeah, I mean, the reason we didn't, um, you know, get hit so hard, as you well know, in the 2008-2009 uh, downturn is because we, we did uh, rely and lean on our natural resources. We're so blessed in this country to have them, and, and they helped us get out of what we were in. This government doesn't seem to be signaling they're going to go that way. I certainly hope I'm wrong on that point. But Fitch um, Credit Rating Agency, I mean, they have said that this is um, this pandemic's taken a permanent toll on, on economic growth in Canada, um, and, and they're sending out real warnings of a second downgrade. And that was based on information they had before the extra thirty-seven billion dollars right. um, in aid was announced. And so that means what when you see terribly frightening GDP numbers and threats of another downgrade? Well, and you know that's. You know, that was Canada's vulnerability going into this downturn. You talked about how, you know, it wasn't just the pandemic. I mean, this country was teetering on the edge of recession even before the pandemic came along. And we were very vulnerable to a downturn because we had the largest debt load uh, overall, if you include everybody, households, corporations, provincial governments, federal governments, if you add it all up, we had the most debt of anybody. So uh, when people start losing their jobs, when incomes start falling rapidly, suddenly it becomes very difficult to service that debt. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Fitch is looking at that, not just the federal government in isolation, but they look at Newfoundland has already gone bust in this. Alberta and Ontario, we've seen very large deficits. The provinces are in really bad shape. That's one reason why the federal government this week had to write another $2 billion check to them. 
Uh, and that's not going to be the end of it. There's going to be a lot more. So everybody's turning to the federal government uh, because everybody else has basically tapped out their credit lines and taken all, all, all the debt they could. So very quickly, federal debt is, is going uh, is rising sharply because they're the only ones in a position right now to take on more debt. And uh, Fitch is saying, you know, very quickly the federal government's going to run out of uh, room to take on additional borrowing, too. So, uh, you know, we were in a very vulnerable position even before this pandemic. This pandemic has revealed... Uh, a lot of underlying weaknesses and vulnerabilities in the Canadian economy that were there even before the pandemic. So you can't just say, oh, it's it's all mm-hmm. a virus. No, we put ourselves in a position where we were very vulnerable. It's going to be an ugly time looking forward. A lot of people are going to be hurting, and that's what uh, worries me most. Uh, Philip, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That is Philip Cross joining us. And so you see all the unrest on both sides of the board with all these, you know, fights and marches and protests, and all that stuff. That's going to get even uglier as the disparity grows between the haves and the have-nots. And we see uh, people hitting the wall, relying on things like food banks. It's just, uh, it's going to be very difficult. Well, there's a battle brewing, this time between the big box grocers, farmers, food processors, and indie retailers. And uh, a group of eight major industry associations that represent this wide selection of businesses in the agri-food sector are going to be pushing the Liberals to use this upcoming throne speech to announce plans to create what they call a grocery code of conduct that would then regulate relations between supermarkets and their suppliers. And this is because just a few weeks ago, Walmart Canada announced that it was going to be charging a new set of fees on goods if these guys want to get their product on shelves. And it's not a small cost. We're talking about an additional 6.25%. Now, they say it's because they need to offset costs of $3.5 billion in planned spending in its stores and its e-commerce network over the next five. The concern is, you know, once Walmart does it, then you'll see Loblaws, Sobeys, Costco, and all the rest of them follow suit. And what it means really for the little guy, you know, the farmers, the local small grocer, is higher costs. And we, the customer, well, we pay them. John Keogh is founding managing principal with Chantella. He's also an expert in food supply chains. Good to have you, John. Hi, Alex. Uh, Thanks. Uh, Nice to be with you. Well, it is a complex issue, but that's how I kind of understand it. Can you give us the bare bones of, of what's at play here? Well, it's uh, it's a mess, to be honest, uh, but it's not a new problem. The problem has been around for some time. I mean, recently, consumers were faced with empty shelves, so we knew that there was a demand problem, so we mm-hmm. saw that. But what consumers didn't know about until now is that back on the demand side and the supply side, uh, there, there are issues brewing, and these slotting fees um, that used to pay for or do pay for marketing activities and sales activities in stores and promotions, uh, they're normally about 3%, but with this additional 6.25% that Walmart is adding, and the expectation is that others will follow, that's going to break the back of the industry, hence this call for the code of conduct for grocers. Okay, so explain it to me. You know, you want to get your product on the shelf. You essentially have to pay pay a fee to get it there, correct? Yeah, the power asymmetry that's at play here is quite significant. Uh, the retailers d- decide what Canadians uh, eat, essentially, and uh, and they define who gets on which shelf and where. So, yeah, not have... not all shelves are created equal. I mean, if you're on the bottom shelf, uh, you're not you're not the most. Uh, you didn't pay the big exactly. fee, I guess. 
Exactly. So the power of symmetry is massive. And uh, in cases, you know, I've talked to with retailers around the world when we're trying to do the uh, traceability and uh, recall effectiveness programs. And and some of them just would tell you quite blatantly that if they have a, an, an unsafe product that the manufacturer has to take back, they'll immediately sell, send them a, a consulting fee that they have to pay, which could be several hundred thousand dollars straight away. And then they get involved. And then, But there are penalties involved. If they don't replenish the shelves with new stock of safe products, then they have to pay more fees. And it's quite significant. So it's, it's not only in Canada. This is a worldwide uh, issue in, in the developed markets. Mm-hmm. But it is rare for these small groups to team up and work together. And what they've asked is that the Liberals raise the issue in the throne speech. And the Liberals say, yeah, we'll do that. But they're not committing to changing anything. And, you know, we're in a point, John, where small retailers, small uh, businesses are, are really being crushed in this pandemic. And and the big box stores like the Walmarts, the, all these big lobbies, they made out like they, they, the pandemic served them very, very well. Not so much for these little guys. Yeah, that's right. You're spot on, Alex. And part there, like it's, there's a, a multitude of issues here. And with these fees that are being added, somebody you know somebody has to end up paying these, right? And it ends up the smaller guys will get more cost leverage on them, or the other players that compete with Walmart, the four or five other guys, they will start looking for these extra fees as well to try to recover from the pandemic. But the issue, if you look at Canada broadly, we already know we have a problem with our manufacturing capability. We're 50% underdeveloped in our food. So if these fees keep increasing, the manufacturers are going to be squeezed. We're losing 12 jobs uh, per per day, or yeah, per day in in Canada, uh, in the manufacturing sector. And every new job in manufacturing allegedly creates seven other ancillary jobs in in the region. So this is significant. As the costs go up. Our manufacturing capability will go down. Right. We'll be forced to into the U.S., and we're going to lose more and more jobs. So it's just a knock-on effect, cascading consequences again, uh, Alex. Well, it's actually fighting against the very initiative, this United Canada, you know, the buy local that uh, Doug Ford has been um, really pushing, the Chamber of Commerce is really pushing. They're pushing a buy local to try to save these small businesses. And then you've got this happening um, at a level where most people don't even know it, you know, it's happening. And, and it's tough. How do you take on a Goliath like Walmart? You know, these companies like Loblaws, Sobeys, all these big boys have very, very um, good lobbyists. Uh, you know, they know what they're doing. So how do you see this fight, um, you know, going forward? Well, as you, as you mentioned, Alex, it's unprecedented for all of these different groups to, to get together to try to fight this. And what they're asking for is that code of conduct. And that code of conduct will, will then set some guidelines like the UK has it and other countries have it. And, and this is quite important because within the EU, the EU saw this coming. And typically, I would say that mm-hmm. the EU is about five years ahead of Canada and the US, but they're already driving a program for market transparency for various reasons. There could be one or two major suppliers that uh, there could be a potential for p- price manipulation towards the c- consumer. There could mm-hmm. be monopolies or duopolies there. So there are a multitude of issues. We have to watch what's going on in Europe and then look at how can we get ourselves up to a level where we can protect the uh, the bulk of the smaller suppliers that are out there and the independent uh, grocers. So this is an unprecedented move for all of those associations to get together to try yeah. to fight it. It's going to be a tough one. As, as you mentioned, uh, quite rightly, Walmart is uh, is very powerful. How do you then, how is this not seen as predatorial? 
It is. That's a difficult one. You know, Walmart's mantra is always, we, you know, we bring safe products at the lowest price to consumers. They'll always right. say it's consumer, consumer, consumer. But if we look at examples of what happened in the UK, um, we have a 2017, late 2017 report, which shows that, uh, and this was done with 250, uh, 240 food manufacturers and uh, and processors. And in that, in that survey, it was quite clear that because of the pressure to reduce costs uh, by the retailers, the processors are being forced to go out and look for alternative sources. So the knock-on effect here, Alex, is that they're, they're sourcing products from cheaper sources, so the quality of products yeah. can be impacted. And 32% of them said they cannot guarantee that the ingredients they source are actually authentic. That's an issue. Yeah. We can well, yeah, see it, something it, like that happen here. Yeah, it is an issue, or they just go and buy overseas China and do business with people that we should not be doing, uh, countries we should not be doing business with. Well, it, it's a fascinating um, headline when I saw it. I thought, gee, this is, you know, it, this is above most of our heads. But at the very end of the day, these are the very, uh, you know, people in our neighborhoods. These are the little mom and pop shops that this is affecting, the the smaller grocers that you really like to go and pick up your local fruits and vegetables, the farmer that you, you know, you see in the field planning. So um, it is it is one of those things that we don't see, uh, but it very much affects our everyday way of living. So I'm actually I, I'm very uh, fascinated to see how this fight plays out. And I'm on definitely on uh, on small team on this smaller set of teams. So uh, we'll touch base on it again. I appreciate you joining us. No problem. Thank you, Alex. That is John Keogh joining us here uh, to explain it. And uh, yeah, I mean, the Walmarts and the Costco's, I, they, they did very well. They did very well during the pandemic. They don't need more help. You know who needs the help? That like mom and dad uh, who own a store just down the corner where you get your milk and your bread and whatever. Just go there because they're the ones who are actually really, really uh, not making the ends meet right now. So I'll be uh, watching this one closely. Well, this weekend, there is a very big push to buy local. This is a campaign called Canada United, and it's a national campaign aimed at helping small businesses that have been crushed by the pandemic, with a lot of them facing closure. And, um, you know, obviously during the shutdown, I mean, who wasn't ordering online? I mean, if if you didn't have online in your business plan, you were essentially sidelined. And that meant a lot of small businesses were just done. And that's because they rely on foot traffic. That's where they get their, their, their business. And so, of course, all the businesses have had to reinvent themselves. And a major part of the overhaul now, small or big, is going online. Let's bring in Adam Oldfield, who is our global news uh, radio tech expert. And, um, I mean, you're a small business. And the good news is you have been able to kind of pick up the slack. What's business been like as far as people kind of uh, rechanging how they do things? Well, yeah, I've been very fortunate. And I started this back in 2015 when I, I my first initial direction on this was to go paperless, uh, you know, with the intention of saving costs and trying to make it easier for uh, a work balanced life for for my staff. Um, and it worked out. Uh, of course, it wasn't consistently every day online um, and working with clients and customers. I've worked on both sectors in retail and online uh, since COVID. It's a it's a reality that Canada, particularly, Alex, is that they've been thrusted into integrating into this new form of how to do business. Um, 
And I think from uh, I think a lot of businesses are right now trying to still uh, I think the first um, uh, thought process was maybe we'll get through this COVID. I'll still be able to operate my business, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's in the retail sector or some, some side. And as we go into phase three of this COVID process, a lot of businesses are starting to realize that consumers aren't buying the same way and they want that convenience and satisfaction of being able to order online to get that customer uh, uh, expectation is uh, to experience it, uh, the details of what is it how much is it the convenience of having it delivered so whether your restaurant retail it doesn't matter or even services everyone wants to be released from physical contact um you know we saw that with touch uh, uh tap and pay and otherwise so the the real uh my experience in working on this is that we've been very busy and i've been fortunate during covid in my business that we were already running remote but i work with a lot of companies and that migration is a big challenge for small business how do they yeah. do it what is the step to do that and um you know the bdc the business development of canada at one time uh had an integration program about five years ago and it was it was called internet communication technology the intention was to bring small businesses invest in that technology make it more convenient to meet up with the existing times a lot of businesses are still trying to adapt to that and that's a big struggle right now yeah, I mean, Amazon just, uh, like, honestly, they, they did just had, had hand over fist a business. They just didn't stop. And, and people got used to, um, you know, I've never ordered from Amazon, like, before a pandemic. But then all of a sudden, it was a, it was a necessity to order online because, you, you know, you didn't want to go out. It's hard, though, for a small business when you don't necessarily carry all that overhead. You know, like Amazon's got massive warehousing. They've got the stock and bigger online, you know, whether it's the Neiman Marcus or the big retail stores or, or Best Buy, whatever, they're, they're, they're outfitted to be online and they can uh, carry those costs. It's much, much smaller, though, if you're just, you know, a small uh, clothing shop or a, a floral uh, arrangement shop. Yeah, well, and, and on top of that, there, there are systems available for these companies. The biggest challenge, and I think a lot of them can attest to that, is Shopify is, is right. a godsend to a small I've business. I've still never used that, by the way. I hardly know anything about it other than it's Canadian. I, I literally, <laughs> I've never used it. Am I the only person in, that's not used it? Well, I mean, you might have bought from it, um, but used it because, you know, you haven't necessarily needed it. But Shopify is really a turnkey solution for that business operator that doesn't know anything about how to run their business online, how to run an online uh, product to be sold uh, from an inventory perspective or otherwise. But, I mean, this the problem is, is that a lot of business owners are good at what they do. And what we've done is said, okay, whether you're good in furniture, whether you're good at selling uh, clothing or making chocolate for families or baking goods, all of a sudden it's imagine, as you said at the very beginning of this segment, is people no longer are going to retail. So now that baker, uh, the candlestick maker, they're all going, I got to put this online if I want to survive or figure out a curbside pickup through an online order. And they've got the tools online available to use, but a lot of them are struggling with how to do it. They have to either hire someone to show them how to put it together because, like I said, they're used to making candles or baking cakes. They're not into the business of setting up an online e-commerce website, um, creating a process merchant system, and then making sure when the order comes through, it goes into a bag and it is conveniently available at the curbside with a lockbox. That yeah. is 
That is completely out of the. They just want to make a cake and, you know, make a candle, whatever that problem is. So it's put a lot of uh, new struggles in small business that there isn't an education platform available or have been available um, that is necessary. Now, uh, this is the big point. How do we get businesses in Ontario to start to think this way? And I think there's got to be a little bit of an incentive from the government to help retrain small businesses to be able to operate and sell online to compete in the future. Yeah. I mean, there was one business that I was recently uh, frequenting and, and one of the big challenges they had, they, they do online, but their their computer, their program wasn't designed to signal that if Warehouse One had sold out of a certain chair, uh, you know, that, that once it was bought online, it wasn't registering. And so people would go online and buy something and they'd say, oh, well, hold on a second, we don't have it in stock. Uh, and so they had to reintegrate their whole system to be able to you know, basically talk to each other. Uh, it's not as easy said and done, but I do think it is crucial that business do this. And I do, I mean, if this is what we're talking about spending, this is the targeted spending that makes sense. You help the small business, you know, reinvent itself, modernize so that they can stay open when they're shut down. Absolutely. And if there, there should be a program available. I mean, Google made an announcement only a couple of weeks ago that they're now offering three fully trained programs to help re-educate individuals that have lost their jobs due to the fact that there have been uh, layoffs due to COVID. And in that process of doing so, they're offering absolutely free Google certified programs for data analysts, uh, certified uh, search engine optimization, and even coding programs, absolutely free, seven months. And if you walked out with a certificate, uh, you could be earning between forty to $70,000 a year. Now, now, this is that's a program by Google, and that's because we could they can see that the element of having more coding, more programming uh, is, is demanding and is going to be required. So this is something I think we got to look at. It's not just our youth that has to learn this. It's our yeah. existing small businesses. That's the biggest yeah. hiccup. Biggest hiccup, biggest challenge. And um, and we'll see where it moves forward. All right, Mr. Oldfield, got to let you go. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Alex. Enjoy your weekend. Take care. That is your podcast for today. Of course, join us live Monday through Friday on point 630 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.